Well, have you ever noticed how money can change a relationship? You know, when I was little, I, I had no qualms about borrowing money from my friends. Uh, th- there was a time when I was going to school in Brazil, and they were having a, a school fair where they were grilling, you know, famous Brazilian steak, kind of these shish kebabs with filet mignon. It was, it was amazing. Uh, and so my parents had given me some money for, for food, but, you know, obviously uh, I wanted more. And so I, I borrowed money from a friend knowing that I could pay him back the next day. <laughs> when my parents find out, they were not happy. And, and I came to understand very clearly that day that when you owe someone money, that changes the relationship. It's not what it used to be. And it's not only for lending money. My, my parents made it very clear. It's also about doing favors you know, for, for others. The, the more you owe someone, the more it, it changes the friendship. Uh, I, think, I think many of us here have probably known of, of close friendships, even family relationships that have been divided over the issue of money. Now, does that dynamic work in our relationship with God. No, there, there's a lot of good things that we feel like we can do for God in this life. Um, th- things that are not what we naturally would do. You know, we, we volunteer, we come to church, we give of our offerings. That, that's all in the religious context, but you can broaden it out. You know, we, we volunteer for the local charity, we, we donate things to goodwill, we, we compost and care for the earth. You know, these are all the kinds of things that make us feel like we're actually giving something to God. We're earning credit with Him. That, that if we do enough of that, then, then eventually you might start feeling like, like the gap between us and God is closing. Right? But, but does that really happen? Is me giving to God like me giving to a good friend? If, if we're feeling, feeling this way, what are we missing in our understanding of who God is? Way back in May, we started a series through the book of Malachi, where we considered that the, the things that Malachi taught the people of Israel to prepare them for the arrival of their Messiah are also the things that we need to hear today as we await the return of the Messiah. This morning... Malachi is going to deal with how Israel's relationship with God has changed. But this change happened not because God had gone anywhere. No, no rather, Israel, were the one, they were the ones who had changed, who had walked away. And whatever it was that they were expecting to get from God, they would soon find out that they had something very different coming to them. So, so turn with things to Malachi, chapter 2. Verse 17, Malachi 2.17, page 1489 in the Pew Bibles. Before I start reading, let me just set up a little bit of the context. You know, Israel, because of their sin, was taken out of the land that God had given them. But now, many years later, they have returned from exile. Rather than wiping them out, God graciously preserved them through decades of exile. And now they're back. They're, They're in the promised land, just as God had said. Except that this isn't a land overflowing with milk and honey. No, this is a land surrounded by pagan nations that are harassing them. And even while their enemies seem to be prospering, 
God's people are struggling to survive. They're, they're scraping out this, this hard existence on, on harsh land. Even though the temple has been rebuilt, the people are far from returning to living according to God's word. Uh, from, from the priests to the people, they are corrupt. And they are feeling very hopeless. But God has not left his people. And we know this because he speaks to them through his prophet. And the first thing that Malachi wants to say to them is, is a warning here in this passage. And the warning is, point number one, if you're taking notes, don't test God's justice. Don't test God's justice. Look with me in Malachi 2, starting in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. The book of Malachi is organized by several disputations, as if the people of Israel are being put on trial. And this section opens with God bringing a charge against his people, but it's really his response to a charge that they brought against him. What was their charge? Well, they were questioning God's justice, right? And and this wasn't just questioning. They were doubting. This was unbelief. Did you catch the sarcasm in what they were saying there in verse 17? All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. He is pleased with them. He delights in evildoers. You know, in direct contradiction to what God had revealed about himself as being righteous and holy, these people were calling God out for not doing anything about the evil all around them. And perhaps we can see why they were thinking this way. I mean, surrounded by pagan nations that were filled with idolatry and yet prospering, you know, living under the rule of this pagan Persian empire, they couldn't figure out why was life so hard for them and so easy for others. You know, at the heart of their grumbling is the question, where is the God of justice? It, will God ever do anything about this? If God is so holy, why doesn't he deal with these pagans and vindicate us, his people? Perhaps this is a question that you've asked before. It, it's certainly a question that God's people have asked throughout Scripture for a long time. Uh, just read the book of Psalms. Now, God has answered this charge before, and he's going to answer it again. But, but I want you to notice something. 
There is a way to bring to God your questions that is rooted in faith and trust. You, know, you can go to God and say, God, I, I don't know the answers to my questions, but I don't have anybody else to turn to. You're my only hope, so help me understand. But there's also a way to question God, like we see here, that is rooted in unbelief, where you've already made up your mind that you are not going to trust God, that he is no good. That's what's going on here in Malachi, here in verse 17. And there's a sense in which this wearies God. This is the kind of questioning that tests him, that tests his justice, his holiness. And as we're going to see, that's not a good thing because God's justice will win out. So, so what's God's response to this charge? Well, basically to summarize, it's the simple truth that yet yeah, he will one day bring justice. And it's not going to be what the people expect. You know, they're looking for the judgment of their enemies. But notice that God doesn't even mention them. Instead, what they need to be concerned about is that when God draws near for judgment, he's going to draw near to them. You know, they are not exempt. This, this image of a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap, it's basically an image of judgment as a painful separation separating the wicked from the righteous. Now, part of the, the pain, the difficulty of this world is, is the fact that we live in a world where the wicked and the righteous exist side by side. You, know, you can't tell them apart. It's really easy to hide. But according to the Bible, the day is coming when that difference will be made clear. Like, like dross is burned away from silver, like dirt is removed from fabric, so the wicked will be separated from the righteous. And this is a judgment that will not be limited just to the Levites, the religious leaders. No, we see in verse 5 that God is going to draw near to all the people. What's the significance of this list in verse 5? Well, there's no real pattern here. Uh, so some of these sins have to do with money. Many of them have to do with the oppression of the weak. Some of these are public sins, but some of them are also very secret and private. I don't think this is meant to be an exhaustive list, but there's certainly enough to prove that there is more than enough evidence for Israel to be judged. In particular, I think what these sins highlight is the way that they didn't fear God and how they were living. So, so, so think about perjury. He lists perjury here. Um, you know, you, you swear an oath in court. You put your hand on the Bible. But the time comes to speak the truth. And it's really going to cost you. It's really going to hurt. If you knew that you could get away with lying and that there, there was no God of justice, then what motivation would you have for telling the truth? Right? Or, or think about adultery. If the husband knew that he would never get caught, that the wife would have no clue of what's going on, and if there was no God of justice, why would he restrain himself? Why would he remain faithful? We can say the same thing for, for the oppression of the weak, for all the secret idols of our hearts, for the secret addictions that we entertain. If there is no God of justice, and if you are smart enough never to get caught then it's those who 
get away with it, that win in the end, isn't it? Ah, but they would be wrong. There, there is a God of justice, a God who sees everything and is offended by our brazen disregard for him and his law. And this God promises that he will come and he will burn away the wicked and purify for himself a people so that once again he might be worshipped rightly. How is he going to do this? Well, in anticipation of that day, he's going to send a messenger, like a herald, preparing the way for the king. This messenger will come, and he will prepare the way for me. Did you catch that? For me. This is God speaking. God himself is going to come. Suddenly, unexpectedly, the Lord, God himself, will come to his temple. And yet, amazingly enough, this Lord is also the messenger of the covenant. It, he, he, is, he is the Lord himself, but he is also the messenger. You know, throughout the Old Testament, messengers of God were normally human or angelic representatives of God, speaking his message on his behalf. But here, God uses the title of both being the messenger of the covenant to talk about himself. How can God both send a messenger of the covenant and also, but also be the one who is sent, who goes? You know, theologians have tied themselves in knots trying to figure out what's going on here. But the New Testament answers this question pretty straightforwardly. Heralded by John the Baptist, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this passage. He is the one who arrives in Jerusalem. And he is none other than God in the flesh coming to his own, and his own did not receive him. Just like the, the people in Malachi's day, the religious leaders were expecting Jesus to come to conquer, to defeat their enemies. But what did Jesus say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It turns out that judgment day had not arrived yet. In his mercy, God sent Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, not to condemn, but to save. Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to God and then offered that life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. He didn't come to bring judgment on us. He came to bring judgment on himself. The judgment that we deserved. And he died in the place of sinners. But three days later, God raised him from the dead precisely to vindicate Jesus, to prove who he was, to confirm that he is the promised Savior who is coming to judge. And yet now, for any, even today, for any who will repent of their sins and place their trust in Jesus Christ, God will forgive them of their sins. And include them among his covenant people. The day is coming. Jesus himself taught this. The day is coming when he would return. Where all the nations of the world would be gathered up. And there will be a great separation. Uh, like, like the way a, a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The way a farmer separates the wheat from the tares. The way a fire separates gold from the dross. And when that day comes, no one will ask any longer, where 
is the God of justice. No, no justice, good and evil, will be made crystal clear. Every mouth will be stopped. If you're not a Christian here, we're so glad that you're here. Know that you're always welcome. And, and, and if this is new to you, boy, I hope you come back. I hope you keep coming back and, and hearing more of this. Uh, I do want to ask you something, though. How do you explain the human longing for justice? Right? I, I trust that all of us long for justice to some degree. Maybe you've been touched by some, some real personal hurt some real personal injustice, and you feel that longing for justice. Maybe you're angered by the headlines of recent days, you know, the Boston Marathon, Sandy Hook. If you've lived long enough, you've experienced that desire for human justice. Where does that come from? Right? It's really easy for philosophers and evolutionists to claim that there's no such thing as morality, and maybe that might work for a while, but live long enough you're going to find yourself very quickly being inconsistent with that sort of relativism. Now, one theologian writes, the, the thief is always outraged when someone steals from him. The, the liar is deeply offended when someone lies to her. The, the cheater deeply resents finding that she has been defrauded. And the murderer wants himself and his family to live in peace. The expectations of sinners are characteristically hypocritical. All people, not just the pious, want justice, at least for themselves. Now, there, there are a lot of people today who want to defend a kind of moral relativism. But it actually doesn't take much to realize that we all, at the end of the day, have expectations for how others are to behave. And that really has nothing to do with, with social conditioning. Now, think back to the last time you made an excuse for yourself. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, why is it that we just can't bear to face the fact that we've done something wrong, so we try to shift blame, responsibility, onto others? And have you ever noticed how we only shift blame for our bad behavior? <laughs> I had a bad temper because I was hungry, I was tired. No. Um, but if we had a good temper, yeah, we can take credit, right? We can attribute that to ourselves. Why is that? Why do we innately live as if we're going to be judged? Why are we always trying to justify ourselves? Where does that come from? Christianity has an explanation. Does your worldview? If you're a Christian, I think it, it's easy to think that this message of God as judge is not for us. After all, Christians are those who have been forgiven in Christ, so we don't have to worry about judgment anymore. And in a sense, that's true. But there's also a sense in which if we ignore this truth about who God is, a God of justice and holiness, then we are not knowing God as he truly is. The God we worship is a consuming fire. You know, I, I'm trying to apply this truth to myself even now as I preach the sermon. It, I really want you to like the sermon. Um, you should know, I'm a pastor who struggles with pride. I enjoy hearing people tell me how much they liked 
my sermon. And it's not always for godly reasons. But if God is my judge, then I need to realize that actually, at the end of the day, whether you enjoyed my sermon or not is not what matters most. No, no actually, if I, if I understand that the task I've been given is to preach God's word, to deliver his truth, then what matters most is, is whether or not I was faithful to this word, whether or not I was humble, whether or not I loved the people that I was preaching to and loved God. That's what the fear of God is there at the end of verse 5. It's not, it's not a slavish terror at God's wrath. It's not us fearfully trying to earn God's love, unsure of whether he approves of us or not. No, through the gospel, a, a fear of God, a right fear of God, is to know that God loves us in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we fear him the way a child fears their loving father. No, we, we obey, we trust because we delight in Him. We don't want to displease Him. Even while we're absolutely secure in that love, we have a great concern not to disobey Him. And we all need this. We all need this right fear of God in our lives. So often our lives are chaotic and disordered and uncertain, but the fear of God is like a ballast. It's like an anchor. Ordering our life around the fear of God brings clarity of perspective and balance to our lives. Some of you here are, are going through tremendous suffering. Some of you have had a really rotten week, like cancer, sickness, discouragement, loved ones who are hurting. And you're thinking, wow, are you really saying that God is my judge is what I need to think about in the midst of my pain? Yeah. Yes. Your greatest issue in life, even now, is not whether or not you're going to be healed from your disease, though I pray that you will. No, the greatest issue facing your life is how are you going to give an account to God for your life on that final day? Are you trusting Him in the midst of your pain? Or are you testing His justice? Realize that your life will not be judged on the fact of your sickness or your wellness. Your pain does not define you. Rather, what will define you is your standing before your judge. Others of you are dealing with with some serious fear of man issues. People in the workplace are, are pressuring you. Family members are making your life difficult. Teenagers, if you're anything like me when I was a teenager... You care way too much about what others think of you. You know, in those situations, uh, the world will say to you, you just need to stop caring about what others think. You're better than that. You just be yourself. In other words, rather than letting others judge you, you be your own judge. Yeah, and when we try that, it, it just leaves us in pride and even further isolation. No, the answer to your fear of man problems is found in the right fear of God. The people you fear are not your judge, but you are not your own judge either. No, God is your judge. And this God calls us not to fear man, but to serve one another and to love one another. And we can do this only when we understand that that it is God who will judge us. And therefore, it's what He thinks that matters. Friends, whatever struggle you're going through, let me challenge you 
with this question. What difference would it make in your struggle knowing that God is your judge? What new perspective does that bring in how you should respond to your suffering? As a church, I think this passage has something to say to us also. When I think about Israel, you know, self-righteously judging others, calling for God to bring judgment, and then God reveals that they are the ones who are going to be judged, you know, I think, I think, wow, that could be us, right? Now, how easy it would be for us to become a kind of self-righteous huddle, accusing the world of their wickedness, praying for God's judgment, but totally oblivious to our own sins, right? Totally oblivious to the ways in which we are testing his justice every day. So, church, let's not do that. Let's, let's be slow to confess other people's sins. Let's be quick to confess our own sins, right? But before we get to the headlines and all that's wrong with the world, let's work hard to see our own sins as the biggest problem of our lives. Let's work hard to keep the gospel at the center of our life together. Humility, compassion, gentleness, all these things are possible only when we realize that, that, that God has treated us graciously in Christ. I pray that, that as Christians we would never be the kind of people that would talk casually about God's judgment. That, that we would be those who would First, humbly realize that we too will be judged. And therefore, the only hope that anyone has is in Jesus Christ. Friends, don't test God's judgment. Because if you're wrong, the cost is going to be unbearable. God will prove himself to be just. And those who test God's justice will be separated from him forever. But that's not the whole picture. The God of justice, as we're going to see, is also the God of grace. And so we see Malachi's next point. Don't test God's justice, but test God's generosity. Point number two, test God's generosity. Put put it to the test. Put his grace to the test. Look with me at verse six. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land says the Lord Almighty. All right, so once again, there's this exchange between God and his people. But now, rather than highlighting judgment, God wants to remind them of his kindness and generosity. If you want to test God, if you want to, if you want to test God, 
then don't test his justice. Test his generosity. Dare God to show you just how gracious and generous he can be. And God's generosity is not just some kind of wild gamble that we might take. No, generosity is what our relationship with God has always been characterized by. That, that's what he's reminding them of there in the first few verses. God reminds them that it's his unchanging faithfulness that has preserved them all along. That their present existence, in spite of all their unbelief, in spite of all their sin, is possible only by grace. They should have been destroyed a long time ago. The, the reality of God's justice that we were talking about in the previous point that is as true today as it will be on Judgment Day. And yet, by His mercy, they have not been consumed. And so, instead, God is graciously holding fast to His promises, His unchanging promises to bring about salvation, even through Israel. By the way, do you see, do you see the irony of what's going on here? You know, they're complaining about God, not realizing that it's God's kindness that enables them to complain, right? Uh, That's the the madness of our sin. We grumble against God using the very breath and reason that he has graciously given us. What's the point here? Well, our relationship has always been, like I said, on the basis of God's generous grace. God has not changed. He has remained ever as faithful and committed to the relationship as ever. And so if anyone has changed, it's us, it's sinners. Israel turned and walked away from the relationship. This this has nothing to do with physical distance, but it has all to do with our hearts. In our sin, in their sin, Israel turned their backs on God in order to pursue the, the pleasure and pride of this world. You read the story of the Old Testament, and it would seem that the limits of God's generosity would have been surpassed a long time ago. But God, even here, again, says to them, return to me, and I will return to you. He doesn't say, return to me, and maybe I'll forgive you, but things are going to be different from now on. No, he says, return to me, and I will return to you. All too often in this world, we encounter marriages that fall apart where, where one spouse commits adultery and is unfaithful. And sometimes that spouse realizes the wrong that they've done, the, their, 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 their foolishness, and they come back repentant, asking, you know, take me back, please. I'm sorry. And sometimes the answer is yes. But sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes people have been hurt so bad that they, they can't risk taking them back. We can't risk that hurt anymore. Not so with God. Not so with God. God, the wronged husband, will always receive back his wayward wife. Return to me, and I will return to you. I will, I will once again love you and receive you as my own. God is moved toward his people in compassion. No matter how far they've wandered, God is ready to take them back fully. Well, the people want to know, how are we to return? God gives them a very practical picture of faithfulness. Bring your tithes and offerings to the temple. 
Return to me by once again reprioritizing, reorienting your life around the worship of the one true God. That's what tithing represents. You know, the temple in Jerusalem wasn't just some sort of random charity, you know, in in Jerusalem. It it wasn't just another church around the corner. No, the the temple was the center of God's redemptive purposes. The, The temple was God's provision for his presence dwelling in the midst of sinful man. Through the provision of the temple, people's sins were atoned for by sacrifice, looking forward to the day, as we saw earlier, when God's Messiah would arrive in the temple. So, so God really isn't giving them a new command. The, the way Israel is to return to God is by once again worshiping God as he had commanded them throughout the Old Testament. By offering right sacrifices, trusting him by faith. The worship of their temple was central to the worship of God. And therefore, this worship could not happen without the nation as a whole once again returning to God's word and committing themselves to obey his commands to bring the tithes and offerings to the temple. God invites them to return this way, and the blessing that he offers is exactly what he had promised from the day that they arrived in the promised land. Uh, If they will be faithful, the skies would open up with rain. Their crops would not be destroyed by pests. Their vines would not fail to produce fruit. Why? Not, Not simply so that they could be rich, no, but in order, as we, as we see there in that last verse, in order that Israel would once again attract the attention of all the nations, that the whole world would be introduced to the one true God of Israel, the God who blesses his people. This blessing is none other than, than God's promises to Abraham being fulfilled, looking forward to the day when the curse would be undone, and the knowledge of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Well, how do we apply this, this to ourselves today? All right? We're not the nation of Israel. Right? So how do we read this? Well, even though we're not the nation of Israel, we understand from Scripture that the nation of Israel existed primarily to point us to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has fulfilled all that Israel was to be. And now by faith, all those who place their trust in Jesus Christ have been united to him. And have become the true people of God. So, so when we read a passage like this, even though we're not the nation of Israel, we, we do learn something of God's character. We believe that, and, and we believe that through Christ, we have been brought into a relationship with that God. A, a God who is generous. A God who blesses us with true riches, with forgiveness, with joy, with fellowship with one another countless other spiritual blessings in this life. And he will one day bring us into his eternal kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth. If you want to think more about that, listen to the previous three sermons. You know, some people have used this passage to teach a kind of prosperity theology that God wants Christians to be rich now in this life. And very conveniently, if you will only give to their ministries, then God is going to repay you with all the riches that you want. If you ever encounter anyone using that sort of logic to teach this passage or any passage in Scripture, know that there is no biblical justification for that whatsoever. First of all, God has already, made it, has already condemned the greed of, of those landowners in, the, in that previous section. 
So it's not a good sign if your motivation to give is greed. Okay. More importantly, though, I think the problem with prosperity theology is that their view of God is just way too small. God's generosity is far more immense than simply a pile of cash or your dream house. You know, prosperity theology folks get this wrong because they define blessing according to this world's definition of blessing. Money, good health, popularity. Those aren't evil things necessarily, but but should that be our definition of blessing? Let me put it this way. If you're willing to say, okay, I'm not going to let Hollywood or, or my fantasies or my parents define what blessing means. I'm going to go to God's word and I'm going to let him define what true blessing, true riches are. If, if you're willing to say that and believe that, then I have no problem saying to you that God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be blessed according to his definition. Ephesians 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 2.6 God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages How many ages is that? I think it's all of them. In the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Friends, prosperity theology has way too small of a God. You give him some money that won't last, he gives you back some more money that won't last. I mean, what is that? Who wants that? That's not a good deal. Why would you settle for that? No, the true God has something far better in store for you. Something eternal, unshakable, that cannot be lost. The true God knows how to be generous far beyond what you even know to want. And if you trust him, he will give it all to you. So, so test God's generosity. Test Him. I love God's challenge to us in, in this. The, the way to test God's generosity is by obeying sacrificially. Can God really make our obedience to Him worthwhile? Right? Is it really worth for me to forego a, a certain luxury or comfort in order for me to be able to do more for God? Well, test Him. If you don't think that he's really all that generous, well, well, yeah, then you might as well grab all you can here in this life. But if he really is as generous as he says he is, then test his ability to reward you for your obedience far beyond what you gave to him, both in this life and the next. So let me make this real practical. Test God's generosity by coming back and gathering with us on Sunday evenings to pray, right? It's tiring. After a long morning worship, we get out at 12.30 sometimes. You have to drive a long way to come here. 
It's, it's tiring to, to then drive all the way back just to pray. It's hard to give up that precious time with extended family. But do you think God is not able to outgive your sacrifice in coming back out to pray? Test him. Test him in this. Test God's generosity by doing hard things that God is calling you to do. We all have those things. Sign up to visit a shut-in. Share the gospel with that difficult relative or neighbor. Forgive that person who has wronged you. Be open to the call of world missions. Fight your struggle with pornography by getting rid of that computer. And persevere in obedience to the very end. Do this knowing that you will never be able to outdo God in His generosity towards you. If God really is this generous, then really every hard obedience is just an opportunity for us to find out how generous God is. This is sort of like it was for me when I was growing up. Growing up in a Chinese home, I thought that life was pretty unfair. I had to do chores. I had to practice violin. I had to go to after-school math classes. I had to go to Chinese school. Um, It seemed really unfair, especially since all my other white friends didn't have to do any of that. And at times, it felt like my parents, like, owed me for all the work that I was doing for them. It wasn't until I got older, when I began to have to work and pay bills and raise a family, that I began to understand just how hard my parents worked in the laundromat and and just how tight things were financially and just how much they sacrificed by by coming to America in order that I might have a a better future. That I realized that that their love for me and generosity towards me far exceeded anything that I had imagined, anything that I had done for them. In fact, all the hard work that they put me through was actually a huge blessing for me that I'm still thankful for to this day. You know, maybe that's something of what heaven's going to be like, isn't it? I mean, here on earth, we, we labor, we work hard to obey, we, we don't know what it's all for. It just seems so hard. But we'll get to heaven one day, and it's all going to be revealed. And we're going to look, and we're going to see things with right eyes, and we're going to be amazed. We're going to be satisfied with God's generosity. No one's going to think, okay, yeah, I've earned this. No, instead, instead, perhaps it's going to be those who have worked the hardest who will have the greatest understanding of just how gracious and generous God is. You know, this passage does deal with, with the issue of tithing and giving. So I do want to speak to that. Let me just make eight very quick observations. Eight very quick observations about giving from this text. First of all, if you're thinking about giving to the church, realize that all that you have belongs to God. Right? That's what it means for God to be judged. He's judged precisely because all we have belongs to Him. And so the question is not, you know, how much belongs to God, 10% or 11%. No, it all belongs to God. Number two, we are stewards of His resources. Isn't it amazing that God would entrust his stuff to us. I mean, he really has entrusted it to us. We have the freedom to, to use our resources for eternal good 
And we can also choose to fritter it, fritter it away on just kind of pleasures. We actually can make that choice. But that also means that we are going to have to give an account to him for the choices that we make. We are stewards of our resources. Number three, God uses our possessions to make his glory known. You know, in human history, God isn't just you know, dropping the Bible out of the sky and talking to people in, in dreams and visions. Uh, no, he is using the resources of his people to spread his knowledge across the face of the earth. This was true in Malachi's day, and this is true today. No one hears the gospel apart from people putting their lives and their resources to work to bring the gospel to lost people. Number four, our giving should reflect God's program in redemption. Our giving should, should reflect God's program in redemption. In Malachi's day, that meant giving to the temple because the temple was at the center of God's redemptive purposes. After the resurrection of Jesus, the center of God's redemptive purposes is the local church. Read your New Testament. It's through the local church that God is advancing his gospel around the world. Therefore, our giving should reflect that priority. Your primary giving should be to your local church, to the one that you are a member of. Number five, giving to the church funds the work of the church. Uh, just as Israelites giving their tithes to the temple funded the work of the temple, so your giving to this church funds the mission of this church. Uh, every dollar that you give to this church should in some way connect to that great, co- great commission mission that we've been given. Uh, it, it's not just about keeping a bureaucracy running. No, this, every dollar that you give connects to the preaching of the gospel here and around the world. Number six, giving as part of the worship of the church. Don't treat your giving as just sort of an administrative detail, you know, um, kind of uh, just part of your, like, burden that you have to do in, in being a part of this church. No, no, realize that it's part of your worship. Connect your worship with your giving. All right? Uh, and number seven, well, actually, I have one more after that. Number seven, giving should be sacrificial and generous. Uh, we've been talking about tithe. Should Christians tithe? The short answer is no. No, Christians are commanded to be generous, to give sacrificially, knowing that our entire lives belong to God. But it is interesting to know that the concept of the tithe existed even way back in Abraham, before uh, the Mosaic Law. So, so maybe there is something about a tithe that's appropriate. Either way, as wealthy Americans, I think a tithe is a good place for us to begin. And, and then challenge yourself to test God's generosity, right? Increase the percentage every year. Because, again, the standard is not a number, but it's generosity and sacrifice. And number eight, finally, as God makes very clear, give in faith. Give in faith. Um, look forward to that future generosity that God will pour out to you. That's how we give cheerfully. God will not be any man's debtor. You, you can't outgive God, but you're welcome to try. So, so try it. Well, we should conclude. You know, may, maybe there are some of you here who are still unsure. How can I know that God is going to be generous to me? How can I know that God will be just? That He will ever judge anyone? Friend, the ultimate proof 
of God's justice and his generosity is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. How do you know that God will deal seriously with sin? Well, think about it. In order to purchase our forgiveness, God crushed his own son. He he didn't sweep our sins under the rug. He didn't laugh them away. No, it took the willing crucifixion of the innocent, eternal, infinitely worthy Son of God to satisfy God's righteous judgments against our sin. That's how serious God's justice is. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. If this is what it took for God to forgive sin, how should we expect him to deal with those who minimize their sin, who disbelieve in his justice? So please, please, don't test God's justice. At the cross, however, we also see God's generosity. How does almighty, all-powerful God show generosity? Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Friends, how gracious is God? He is so gracious that he gives us the greatest thing that he can give, his son, himself. And having given us himself, why would we think that he would withhold anything else that would be for our infinite joy and good? If you're not a Christian here this morning, realize that God's generosity in all its massive fullness is poured out to you through Jesus Christ and is available to you. Stop testing God's justice by living for your sin. Living as if he won't one day return to judge. Today he says to you, return to me and I will return to you. God is willing to receive you back, to forgive you. He has made the way through his son. Repent, return, place your trust in Jesus. And find out just how generous he can be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your holiness, at your justice, how inflexible it is, unwavering. And yet, in spite of all its inflexibility, you have made a way for us to be forgiven through your Son. And and within this relationship of your Son, we are amazed at how generous and gracious you are to us. Oh God, we pray that we would be those who know you rightly, both in your justice and in your grace. Oh God, cause us to be amazed even more. And cause us to test you in your generosity rightly. That we would dare to obey in even radical ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.